It's good to see everybody here tonight in the house of the Lord. Let's turn in our Bibles. We're into a new book study tonight. We're looking into the prophet Joel. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to the uh, little book of Joel in your Old Testaments. And uh, if you need a Bible tonight, you can raise your hand as the pastor ushers or someone would help distribute Bibles. Thanks, Turner. Anybody needs a Bible, just raise your hand. It's page 644 in those Bibles the uh, ushers are handing out. It is the uh, prophet Joel, as we take a look together tonight. Might be hard to find. Little tiny book, three chapters only. Probably just this week and next to get through uh, the book of Joel. And then we just will carry on right after Joel into the book of Amos. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we just bow our heads and our hearts in your presence, thankful for your word. Now, as we open it together, as we share from your word, as we study, we pray that you would use this time to challenge us and to strengthen us, Lord. We just love you. We thank you that you first loved us, that you gave your son for us, Lord. Undeserved and unearned, but you... Paid the price for our sins, and we love you, Lord. In response to your love, we love you, Lord. We thank you for life that we can have in your name, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of heaven, just all so wonderful, Lord, that we can't even imagine. Eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what you have prepared for us those things that are still in store, the wonder of eternity that awaits us, Father. Our hearts are full tonight, and we love to be in your presence. We ask now that you would use this time in your word to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said together, amen. Let's take a look first at a little background so we can uh, have a better understanding of this prophet. He is the second of the 12 minor prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament uh, referred to as the 12 minor prophets. Hosea was the first of the minor prophets. Having now finished the book of Hosea, we come into the book of Joel. He's the second among the 12. Again, these are not necessarily in chronological order of their ministry, but in terms of just the order of the closing closing books of the Old Testament, Joel is number two among the 12 minor prophets. His name in Hebrew is Yoel. There is no J in the Hebrew alphabet. So his name in Hebrew is pronounced Yoel, and it is a compound word that means Yahweh is God. Anytime you see El, E-L in someone's name or in a word in Hebrew, that's the uh, derivative for God. And the first part is a reference to the proper name of God. Yahweh is God. Little is known about Joel. In fact, the only thing we know about Joel is revealed here in chapter 1, verse 1, that he is the son of a guy by the name of Pethuel, and we don't know anything about Pethuel either. Pethuel's name means vision of God. He has a son here who uh, becomes this prophet, but there is literally nothing else in the Bible about this prophet Joel. There's no other reference to him by name. The only reference to him outside of the book that he that he wrote is when he is quoted twice 
in the New Testament. He is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Luke records the words when Peter said that what was happening on the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment of the words of Joel. So in Acts 2, Peter is quoting from Joel 2 when he said this in Acts 2, 17 to 21. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that was all what Peter said in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost as he quotes from Joel chapter 2. And so Joel has a very significant prophecy in relation to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And more than likely, we'll get to that next week when we look at uh, the latter part of Joel chapter 2. So a significant quotation in the New Testament. But then the only other reference to Joel by way of quotation, Paul quotes him in Romans 10. He quotes Joel 2.32, which says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Romans 10.13. So outside of those two quotations of the book of Joel, there's no other references to Joel, not by name, not by quoting, not by information. So we know really very little to nothing about this guy. Uh, We aren't even really sure whether he ministered to, prophesied to the southern kingdom of Israel or to the northern kingdom of Israel, but best guess based on some of the information of the text is that he ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah. And that's because within the book of Joel, he references priests. He makes a reference to Zion. And he makes a reference to the holy hill, which is all directed towards Jerusalem. And since Jerusalem is part of the southern kingdom, when Israel went through civil war, and they split northern kingdom, 12 tribes, southern kingdom, two tribes primarily, uh, the southern kingdom known as the uh, the the, the primarily by its more popular name, Judah, by the tribe of Judah. So based on some of the references of Joel to the holy hill, to the temple, to the priests, it's likely that he ministers to the southern kingdom of Judah. But we're not even positive about that. And we're also not even sure the time of his ministry. Um, There are basically three schools of thought. One thought is that Uh, Joel ministered during the 9th century B.C., which is the mid-800s B.C., which would make him more of a contemporary with Elisha, the prophet, which would put his ministry somewhere in the latter chapters of 1 Kings. And I tend to lean towards that. I tend to believe that probably Joel ministers during the 9th century B.C., the mid-800s to early 800s B.C., Uh, along with Elisha would have been to the northern kingdom and he's to the southern kingdom. But then there's also the school of thought that Joel ministered during the time of Amos because you can look, if you just want to take a quick glance at the way that uh, Joel comes near to an end in uh, Joel 3.16. In Joel 3.16, he says, The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. And if you will go over... Just one more page to Amos chapter 1. In Amos 1, 2, Amos chapter 1, verse 2, 
He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. It's almost as if Amos is picking up where Joel left off, which is why then some believe that Joel and Amos are contemporaries. And Amos's ministry happened, we know, because Amos mentioned certain kings during which period he ministered. So that tells us that Amos's ministry was in the uh, early 700s BC. So he's more 8th century BC. So instead of 9th century BC, some see Joel as ministering during the time of Amos, which would be the 8th century BC. And then still others see his ministry in the 400s BC. So we're not even sure. Uh, I believe that it is safer to say it was much earlier, uh, more towards 9th century because he does still make reference to the temple, which would have to predate this before the Assyrian attack upon Jerusalem uh, or the Babylonian attack upon Jerusalem, both of which occurred 722 B.C. and 586 B.C. So it makes more sense to put Joel before 722 B.C. That's why uh, most will date him uh, around 9th century, mid-800s B.C. Now look, you're not going to get home tonight and stumble over, was it 400s B.C., 700s, or 800s B.C.? It doesn't really matter. I'm only giving you the historical perspective, but the, the message of what Joel presents here is not changed by whether or not it's 400s, 800s, or 900s, or 800s, 700s B.C., the fact is that God is using him and he's preserved his words because there's a very important theme that runs its way through the book of Joel. So don't get all hung up on, you know, some people get so wigged out on, well, what is it? It doesn't matter. In the scheme of eternity, when he ministers is not as important as what he ministers, what he says here. Now, having said that, the purpose behind the book of Joel is basically this, to warn people about a coming day of judgment and to encourage people about a gracious God who responds to repentance. That's the basic purpose we're going to see here in these three chapters, that there is this strong emphasis on the coming judgment of God, but that there's also lengthy sections about the mercy of God, the grace of God, and how He responds in a wonderful way to the repentance of people. Some important themes along those lines through the book of Joel. You'll notice with me, God's judgment, man's repentance, and as I mentioned a moment ago, God's outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to take a look at, uh, at this book together. Again, only three chapters, and we'll probably get through about half of it uh, today. I, you will notice that there is this uh, almost kind of a one of those B-movies about locusts. Uh, I want you to just kind of envision this, you know, the overtaking of the world by locusts, you know, like the blob kind of overtook the world. Well, there's going to be this locust invasion. And as we read through this, I want you to recognize with me that it is both literal and it is prophetic as well. Because there are some things that Joel will write here in the early part of his book that indicate present and past tense. And then there's some other parts where he writes in future tense. So it seems to indicate that he's making this comparative statement between a real swarm of locusts that have invaded Israel... And it wasn't the first time and it won't be the only time uh, because I'll, I'll show you some other examples from history of when the big invasion of locusts happened uh, across Israel. But that he then compares that to a coming greater judgment. And he's basically going to say this. If you think the swarm of locusts was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet because the hand of God is going to be heavy upon those who rebel against him. But 
the heart of God is for all people. So as many as would choose to believe in him and repent will experience the gracious, loving hand of God. This is going to be an ongoing theme for the prophets. Recognize with me, God doesn't send prophets to basically say, you guys are doing a good job. He sends prophets to wake up the people because the people's hearts are far from him. So whenever we read through the prophets and you might think to yourself, this is kind of gloomy. We, this sounds like Hosea. Are we going to repeat Hosea again? Is this how the next 11 books are going to be through the 12 minor prophets? Yeah, sort of. Sort of. It's, it's going to be like that. It's just going to be God saying, um, if you don't want to die, turn to me. That's in a nutshell the way the prophets are trying to portray the message of God. So we'll notice here this swarm, this invasion of locusts. And I've got some interesting things to say about locusts tonight, so I'm sure it'll make your day. But let's start here where it begins, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, the other locusts have eaten. Now, we'll pause there for a moment. Here's the deal. He's already talking in terms of past tense because he's saying, have you ever experienced anything like this before in your life? Can you... Can, can, can you even put words to this? This is an incredible thing that has happened. So that his readers here, the ones to whom he is prophesying, have basically already experienced this. And what have they experienced? What they've experienced is this incredible swarm of locusts that have descended upon Israel. Now, why locusts? Write down in the margin of your Bible, Deuteronomy 28. In Deuteronomy 28, God made it clear as the Israelites were about to go into the promised land that if you obey me, here's a long list of blessings. And if you disobey me, here are a long list of curses. Now you guys are going to have to pick and choose. If you want to obey me, you're going to live under my blessing. If you want to disobey me, there's going to be certain curses that come upon you. There's going to be some consequences to disobedience. And God spells it out clearly in Deuteronomy 28 to the people of Israel. So this was to them something very familiar. It may not be to us. When we look here and talk about a swarm of locusts, it's associated with the judgment of God. Because in Deuteronomy 28, and I'll just quote for you, Deuteronomy 28, 38, when Moses was telling the people in advance, this is what's going to happen. You obey God, blessing, you disobey, curses. And one of the curses listed for disobeying God in Deuteronomy 28, 38 is this. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Because locusts will devour it. And then later, Deuteronomy 28, 42, God tells them in advance, Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. One of the ways that God was going to judge the people of Israel to get their attention was if they strayed from him, if they rebelled against him, they disobeyed, he was going to send a swarm of locusts. Because it's pretty hard to ignore a bunch of locusts when everything around you has been completely devoured. And they would make the instant association when Joel was prophesying here between the destruction of the locusts and the judgment of God. So for us, we might read Joel and go, why locusts? Because God had told them in advance, this is one way that I'm going to bring judgment against you so that you will awaken and know that you were far from me in disobedience. Now, when we think of locusts, 
Uh, I typically tend to think of cicada. But that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about locusts in the Bible, we're really talking about something that we would tend to call a grasshopper, like this guy right here, okay? But this is the kind of thing we're talking about. Biblically, a locust is more along the lines of what we would commonly refer to as a grasshopper. So listen up, young grasshopper, because I am... uh, uh, That's an old line in a movie. But anyway, I'm going to... uh, talked about locusts a little bit. I don't want to, you know, uh, bore you with the details, but we need to understand just how severe this whole indictment is against Israel. Now, first of all, I want to point out before I get into all of that, that in verse four, if you have a King James Bible, it it has different words for locust. In verse four, it says in the NIV, what the locust swarm has left And if you have a King James, it'll say what the palmer worm has left. Next verse, NIV, the great locusts have eaten. Uh, King James says locust there. And then the next line says the young locusts have eaten. And where it says young locusts in the NIV, it says canker worm in the King James. And then the last part of verse 4 says other locusts have eaten. And that word in the King James is caterpillar. And it is a difficult um, interpretation on the passage. Some believe that these four different words that are four different words in the Hebrew that are spelled out four different words in the King James and not so much so in the NIV are a description of four types of locusts. That there is one type of locust that is referred to as the palmer worm, one just simply as locust, one is the canker worm, and one is the caterpillar. There's another school of thought, and that is that these are a description of four stages in a grasshopper's life cycle. Again, it, it doesn't really matter. The, the real issue here is that, that these things come and completely destroy the vegetation upon the land of Israel. And when the vegetation is destroyed, it has a ripple effect because you destroy the vegetation and now you're, you're impacting uh, the food supply. So now famine hits. And when famine and the food supply are hit, now you're talking economic collapse that's affected across the whole country. And on top of that, the priests can't perform some of their duties because some of their offerings involve the drink offering. Well, there's no more vine anymore for the drink offering. And the grain offering, we'll read in a moment. And there's no more wheat harvest. There's no more grain harvest as part of the grain offering. So it affects all of life in Israel when the locusts come. Now... The, um, the last great swarm of locusts that happened in Israel was in 1915. And actually, National Geographic documented the great swarm of locusts in Israel in 1915. This is an actual picture of one of the locusts from 1915 that appeared in National Geographic. And um, quite a swarm it was. Uh, This is a picture, you may not be able to see it as well, but all those dots are locusts from the 1915 swarm. And um, if if you can see the next picture, take a look at the the pants legs of this guy right here. Do you see them all over his pants? This is from 1915 when National Geographic did a documentary on the swarm of locusts that hit Israel. And um, here is a picture of a tree that was before the locust swarm of 1915. There's a lady standing there by the tree to give you a proportion of the size of the tree. And after the swarm of locusts came by, this is a picture of the same tree. They even ate the lady. (laughs) 
completely gone. But let me tell you how devastating this is. Now listen to some of this. A swarm of locusts, when we talk a swarm, how many are we talking about? A swarm of locusts can cover up to, are you ready for this, 460 square miles. 460 square miles. Now, Loudoun County is about 520, 530 square miles, all of Loudoun County. So I want you to picture almost the entire county covered with locusts. And how many? Well, there can be anywhere from 80 million locusts in a half square mile. So 160 million locusts per square mile. Now multiply that out and it comes to about 73 billion, that's a B, 73 billion locusts spread out in Loudoun County. 73 billion. That's how they travel when the swarm comes like this. In 2004, one swarm in Morocco was recorded, measured, to be 142 miles long and contained an estimated 69 billion locusts. This was one event in 2004 in Morocco. One million locusts gobble as much food as 5,000 people eat in a day. So now you have the potential for... Well, in this one example, in 2004, Morocco, you have 69 billion locusts covering 142 miles and a path. And 1 million, 69 billion, just 1 million locusts can eat, an, can eat more food than 5,000 people eat in a day. A locust, get this, can eat up to its weight each day. Can you imagine, I don't know how much you weigh, let's just take on average, 150-pound person, right? Can you imagine eating 150 pounds of food in a day? <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, I actually can. Well, uh, that's not good. That's not a good thing. But a locust can eat up to its weight each day, so a swarm of locusts can eat more than 400 million pounds of plants in a single day. 400 million pounds of plants in a single day. So when we talk about a swarm of locusts, I just share with you some of these statistics because you want to get the idea here that when God says, hey, I'm trying to get your attention, he gets it in a big way. That's why Joel starts out by saying, have you ever seen anything like this before in your life? Can you, can you fathom this? Well, of course they can make the connection because they recognize that what's happening in their day is what God said would happen in Deuteronomy 28 if you disobey me and if you rebel against me. So further on here in Joel 1 verse 5, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. And by the way, of all the sins that might be going on in Israel at the time, this is the only one that is mentioned in the book of Joel. Now, I suppose if he were writing today or prophesying today, he would say, wake up, you potheads, you crackheads. I mean, I, I mean, this is the actual thing that's going on in the day, so let's make it relevant. But he's saying to anybody in general, but particularly he's talking to the drunkards. Why? He says, you're going to weep because wail all you drinkers of wine. They're not going to have any more wine. The vineyards have been destroyed. He says, wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. 
The ancient Romans referred to the locusts as um, land burners because in the wake of their devastation, everything was stripped bare. It was as if the whole land had been scorched by fire. So the Romans called them land burners because they would even uh, eat the bark off of the trees. Um, Here's another horrible quote, but just to kind of put things in perspective of just how devastating they are. In the 1915 swarm of locusts that hit Israel and documented documented by National Geographic, uh, John Whiting, the author of the story in 1915 in National Geographic, he said that the locusts in 1915 were so voracious and numerous that they, quote, could swarm over an unguarded infant and devour its eyes within a few minutes. So when we, when we talk here about how just incredibly devastating these locusts were, and you read here about stripping the bark off trees, I mean, it was even more horrific than that. But you get the idea here that God is getting their attention. So the people who love the wine, the drunks, are all weeping because they have no more wine, because there are no more grapes, because there are no more vines. Verse 8, he speaks now to the priests. He says, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning. Those who minister before the Lord, the fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. Again, they can't offer grain offerings or or drink offerings because grain offerings require are usually made up of fine flour and and it requires grain from wheat and drink offerings were from the vine and there are no more grapes, everything's gone so the drunks are weeping, the priests are mourning and the farmers, as he continues in the next section verse 10, he says, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up the oil fails, despair you farmers wail you vine growers grieve for the wheat and the barley Because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. And it's true. I mean, when you have that kind of a devastating impact that affects your livelihood, your ability to eat, uh, the offerings of the temple, I mean, the joy is, is pretty scarce in Israel. But here's the solution. In verse 13, he calls them to repent. He says, Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. He says in verse 14, declare a holy fast. This is not the first time the word fasting will appear in the book of Joel. Three times, actually, there's a reference to fasting. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever uh, practiced the discipline of fasting, but, and some people, for medical reasons, can't. But if you can, this is a good spiritual discipline from time to time because to deprive yourself of food, uh, not, of, not of water. You need, you need to at least be drinking water if you're fasting or, or drinking juice. Or my theory is whatever I can get into a blender. Pray, place God. But anyway, uh, but, but fasting itself is a good spiritual discipline because when you deprive yourself of food, you're kind of shutting down the fleshly appetites and your heart is more inclined to the things of God. 
And there are times throughout the Bible where leaders of nations, and particularly with Israel and in Judah, that they would declare a holy fast. That there are significant times in your life or in the life of a nation where leaders would say, we need to come together and we need to fast. We need to deny ourselves food. We need to get in our faces. We need to seek God. And so if it's something that uh, you've never practiced, I would encourage you. It doesn't have to be, you know, a 40-day kind of a fast. Although, although I've known a couple of people in my life who have actually done 40-day fast for significant, really important uh, reasons. And, then, and they, you know, they checked with their doctors throughout the whole time period to make sure everything was good. But um, even if it's just a day, even if it's just a meal, if it, a couple of days, fasting is a significant thing because it just kind of removes that more of you. And instead of there being more of you, there's more of the Lord because there's less of you in regards to the flesh. And, um, and so he calls the people to a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders, all who live in the land to the house of the Lord, your God, verse 14 ends by saying, and cry out to the Lord. The word cry out in the Hebrew is za'ach. And it means a shriek from anguish. That's the kind of real guttural kind of repentance that God is wanting of them. They are in disobedience to him. He says, cry out, fast, seek me in the house of the Lord. Verse 15, alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Now here's where Joel seems to shift a little bit. Because up to this point, he's been talking about a real-life swarm of real-life locusts that have devastated the land. God's getting your attention. He's calling you to a holy fast and a sacred assembly. This is Deuteronomy 28, where God said he would bring a swarm of locusts if you were rebel against him. Now, he says, almost in comparative terms, for the day of the Lord is near. There is something now coming. There is a future tense that Joel is going to point to here. And he's saying, in a sense, look through the lens of the devastation of the swarm of locusts. Because if you think that was severe, you, you haven't seen anything yet. Because the hand of the Lord is going to be swift. And the hand of the Lord is going to be just. And there is this judgment that is coming upon the earth. Now, from this point on... There's going to be a more of an emphasis to things that are prophetic in nature. And as it relates to the day of the Lord, uh, I believe in many ways that what Joel is speaking of is a day that has not yet come. Now, obviously, some of the stuff we'll get into chapter 2 in regards to the fulfillment of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That, that has come since Acts chapter 2 as a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. But, that, but then in regards to the day of the Lord, what exactly does he mean? Because he's going to use this phrase five times in the book of Joel. In just three chapters, he's going to say the day of the Lord five times. Here's the first time in verse 15. Then it's again in chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, 11, chapter 2, 31, and chapter 3, 14. I'll point it out as we go through it. But my point is this. The day of the Lord is near. It's a future tense. There's something coming. And the day of the Lord is often a phrase that refers to the time when God will intervene in human history. And God steps in. And he superintends himself upon the events of the world. And the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. When the Lord comes in the clouds and the trumpet sound of God is heard and believers are taken from the earth, that begins the day of the Lord. There is a time then when the Lord steps into human history, superintends himself upon it, the calling of the church home by the rapture, followed by seven years of tribulation, if you hold to, as we do here, a pre-tribulation view of the rapture of the church. 
rapture the church, then the tribulation, then Jesus comes again, sets his, himself up with his kingdom for a thousand years, the millennial reign, and then the new heavens and the new earth. All of that is a part of the day of the Lord, but it begins, biblically speaking, at the time of the rapture. So when Joel is speaking of the day of the Lord, when you take all of the context together, what he seems to be pointing to is that day that is future, even from, from our standpoint in time. And he's going to speak here of the dreadful coming of the Lord's judgment. And there's going to be some language here that links it with the time of the tribulation period. So keep that in mind as, as we read on here. I think, I think just for tonight, we'll probably only get through chapter 1 here. But it's particularly more evident in chapter 2. But let's just take a look on further. Where again, verse 15, he says, Alas for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before your, our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. Now, this again is still part of the comparative language here, where he's letting them know. You see how bad the situation is now. There's going to be a dreadful day coming. But this is still in the context of the locust swarm. So he says in verse 17, The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. I mean, consider life in Israel after a swarm of locusts. You're going to have your livestock dying because they can't graze. You're going to have the food supply in shortage. People are going to die. There's going to be famine. There's going to be pestilence because of that and disease that follows when there's large-scale death. And obviously it affects the economy as well. Verse 19, he says, To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Again, this language is probably not literal as much as it is figurative, that the swarm of the locusts have had the same devastating impact as if fire were scorching the earth. And then verse 20 says, Even the wild animals pant for you, the streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pastures. So this whole last part of chapter 1 is a call to repentance. And it is the same call in any generation. Wherever there is sin and disobedience to God, the answer for, for the the attention that God is trying to get in our lives is to turn to Him and to repent. The answer to every generation that is far from God is repentance. Repentance means to turn from the ways that you're walking in, the life that you're living, and turn to God. It's that 180-degree uh, turn from where you are towards God. And repentance is the answer. And Joel is saying if the people of God would repent, he's going to end up saying in the rest of this book that God will then restore what has been ravaged, what has been destroyed. God is a restorer. God is a redeemer at heart. But there is still the justice of God that will be executed upon a people who are in rebellion against him. But the key is always the heavy hand of God is always met by the loving heart of God when people will turn from their sin in repentance to God. And then all of chapter 2 begins this whole thing about the coming of the Lord and um, the judgment of God. And then into the rest of chapter 2 where it talks about the answer of the Lord starting in verse 18. So read ahead. If I start into it now, I'm not going to do justice to the text. So I'd rather save it for next week. Our time has already escaped us. But read ahead into chapter 2. It begins with a very famous song that uh, if you go back 
in, um, in the church for very long, you've been a Christian very long, you're going to recognize the opening verses of chapter 2 as a song, and we'll talk about that next week. But read ahead, it does get better. Not too much more about all the locusts and the gnawing and the chewing. Don't go to bed tonight and have dreams about locusts. Just wanted to plant that in your head. All right, let's pray. Father, we can't imagine the devastation upon the earth after a scene of the swarm of locusts, but we take to heart what you're saying in your word here. That again, you will get our attention by whatever means necessary when we are in disobedience to you. But you call us to repent and you call us to mourn and to grieve. You call us to fast, to seek your face, to turn to you. And Lord, we just ask that you would just do your work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts to point out those issues of sin or rebellion in our own lives, lest we would read a story about Israel and think this is just an ancient story about an ancient people. May we see ourselves in this story. May we place ourselves in this story. To be reminded that what you desire of us is to have a heart that is right with you. That repentance and confession would be on our lips regularly so that we would be in right standing with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious and so patient with us. As you were with Israel, so you are with us. And really, Lord, when we stand back and we recognize that it was your desire to reach them, then we can be reminded that a loving father goes to great lengths to reach rebellious children. So even in our own hearts and lives, Lord, where there is sin, where there is rebellion, where there is disobedience, may we look around our own lives, may we see the barrenness and the devastation. May we see, Lord, in a sense, the damage that locusts have done to awaken us. And may we turn to you and find forgiveness of sins. And find a loving Father who's always been standing there with arms wide open to receive us. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of your word. That if we turn from our sins, if we seek you with all our hearts, we will find you. That you are near, Lord. We love you, Lord. We give you thanks for being a merciful Father. And I pray tonight, Lord, for those who feel far from you, that you would reveal yourself to them as the restorer and the redeemer of lives that are destroyed and devastated by sin and the consequences of sin. that as our loving Father, that you would bring us back to that place of intimate fellowship with you, that you would restore those who are far from you, Father, that we would repent and turn from our ways and 
turn to you, Lord. May we take to heart these things that the prophets of old would write. And let your words speak to us in the same way. As we take to heart these things, Lord. And we give you thanks and we give you praise in the house of the Lord. We worship you. We honor you. We magnify you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen.